Let's open our Bibles to Amos. Let me just um, do a little bit of an introduction in case you weren't here for that, so you won't be left out in the cold on, on just where this fits in in time. Again, the minor prophets are only called minor because they're <clears throat> smaller in size. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Amos here has nine. I would like to get through chapter three through six tonight. Probably a good place to, to lay out the uh, the study is to go to chapter seven. And let me draw your attention. Amos was just a farm boy taking care of the sheep when the Lord called him to Bethel. Bethel is one of the most famous parts of Israel. If you look at chapter 7, verse 10, we're in Bethel. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Now, this would not be Jeroboam the first, because he would have been the first king. This would have been Jeroboam the second. And he said to Amos that he's conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words, for thus Amos had said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. And then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. So he's in Bethel, and he's telling him, Get out of Dodge, get out of here. Uh, There eat your bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal resident. Uh, Then Amaziah said to uh, Amariah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So very similar to David. Um, Again, the Lord choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And it it basically tells us, go back to chapter 3 now, the people that he's ministering to don't want to hear a word he has to say. Go back to Judah. Go back to where you came from. Uh, Where he is, he's at, um, time-wise, is somewhere between 760 to 753 B.C., and um, he is going to be dealing in chapter 3 with the present sins of uh, the northern kingdom, and he's going to give the reason for God's imminent judgment. And even when I use the word imminent, there's going to be little slices. There's still this small chance that you guys can turn from your ways, and uh, judgment won't fall. But we'll start with that, and by the time we get to chapter 6, they have no intention whatsoever of turning from their ways. Um, It was a time of prosperity. It was a time of leisure. It was a time of ease. And I would compare it to Sodom and Gomorrah. If I said, what was the sin of Sodom, what would you say? Most of us would think homosexuality or sexual sins, but that was not the sin of Sodom. The sin of Sodom was pride and leisure of time and plenty. In other words, they had plenty of time on their hands. They had um, no real problems. They were 
prosperous, and that was the sin of Sodom. And this is the sin of, well, the northern tribes aren't going to fall till 722, some say 710. So we're in that period of time, maybe about 50 years before the Assyrians actually do come. And we're going to read a little bit later, they actually put fish hooks in their nose and they led them out. And um, they were a brutal people. I would compare them to ISIS today. So let's look at uh, the reason for judgment as we get into chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. So as we get to 1 and 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you, for you are for your iniquities. And in the second verse, um, you know, the Bible says judgment starts at the house of God. And when, when we're looking in the New Testament, and we're reading in Romans, it, it talks about every really true Christian um, is going to get spanked, <laughs> so to speak, um, if you're messing around, if you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, um, you're not going to have any peace. And there's no real joy there. And, um, you know, in Romans 12, we're warned, don't be conformed. Don't let this world conform you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, how do you get your mind renewed? Only one way I know of. Being in this book and um, dying to yourself daily. Well, they were doing just the opposite. Again, of all the 19 kings, starting with Jeroboam the first, they did not have one good king. And um, as a result, they worshipped the Baals, um, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel introduced Baal worship to Israel. And But the Lord is saying, look, I... I I singled you guys out. I called you out to be different. But the fact of the matter is, you're worse than the, than the kingdoms that were before you. And in verse 3, he says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, hypothetical question where the answer is no. And it goes on to say, will a lion roar in the forest when, they, when he has no prey? No, he's crouching. <laughs> he's... He's scoping things out. He's going to be real. Everybody here has seen a cat. Uh, we got a white cat wandering around our house. And I got nine bird feeders. And he watches from a distance and he's crouched and he's just waiting. Matter of fact, two days ago, you don't see him too often, but um, I actually uh, saw a, f- a fox. I don't see him often, but I, get, I do see him. And uh, he had this black squirrel cornered. He just got up the tree in time. And then he, he waited and he crouched down. And uh, we have a, a large yard in the back. And all of a sudden the squirrel's caught out in the middle of the field. And the, the fox, just like that. And then the race was on. And believe me, they can run. Well, this squirrel just made it to the tree. But I found out that foxes can climb eight feet up into a tree and stay there for a couple seconds before they go back down. Well, that, that one got away. Now my neighbor's next yard, he's sitting there squatting, he's still looking, 
And another one is, he catches another one right out in the middle of the yard. So the chase is on again. Well, that one got away too. So, but can a, a lion roar in the forest when there is no prey? No, they're crouching. They're, they're playing it cool. Uh, will a young lion cry in his den if he has caught nothing? No. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? No. Um, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calm in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Now this next verse, as we get through these, the answer to three through six, of course, is no. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? Um, I think we should do everything we can as Christians to uh, love one another, be in agreement with one another. But there comes a time when, uh, because of doctrine, where you can't walk in agreement with someone. I think Sunday I used just one example of, uh, we're talking about the Trinity if you were here. And remember I told the story about uh, the um, United Pentecostals because they were one example of not holding to the Trinity. We call them Jesus only. And I told the story where they decided they were just going to come up to my office one day and have fellowship. And they walk in my office and they say, Hey, brother, how you doing? And I said, I'm not your brother. <laughs> and I said, of course you are. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're looking at me and you're up here right now because as far as you're concerned, I'm not even saved because I was not baptized in the formula of Jesus' name only. And they just gave me the deer in the headlights look and I, and I said, I'm not your brother. We're not in agreement. Get out of here. And that's exactly what I told them. I showed them the door. Can two walk together unless they're agreed? No. I could not have fellowship with them, nor, nor would I intend to. Nor was I going to get into a debate with them. These were the elders. They were there to persuade me. And uh, they didn't know that I knew quite a bit about what they believe and what they teach. So it was a short conversation. <laughs> Can two walk together unless you're agreed? No. And But we do our best. Um, you know, the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, Lord, there's these guys over there, and they're preaching in your name. And they're not, they're not part of the 12. And the Lord said, then leave them alone. You know, as long as they're speaking the things that I'm speaking, then they're with us. And those who are with us, then they're for us and not against us. So leave those guys alone. Uh, there's people who have different methods. Um, Pastor Chuck always called Calvary Chapel a low church versus a high church. Now, let me explain that. A low church would be in the way that we are less formal than maybe a church where people feel much more comfortable, um, you know, maybe dressing up more. And in that sense, it would be a high church. But they still love the Lord, but they're just used to dressing up and going to church like that on, on Sunday. But the fact of the matter is, here at Calvary Chapel, I can always tell who the visitors are because they got a suit and a tie on. <laughs> and I'm the only one that wears a tie. Maybe Joshua does every once in a while. But we're the only ones. Well, we're considered a low church in a sense that uh, we're low, not 
in esteem or anything other than were more casual and laid back. And uh, one of the things that drew me to Calvary Chapel in the first place was the relaxed manner. And this guy with this great big Jesus grin on his face that didn't have anything to do with the hippies. He was bald and in his 40s. But I, I, I listened to him and I watched him. We got a saying in Calvary's, it is what's taught, but it's more also what's caught. And as I watched him from a distance, I thought, you know, if Jesus was giving a Bible study, I think it would be more like this guy than a guy who's prancing back and forth on the stage, still preaching the gospel, still ministering to people, but I just couldn't identify with it. And I felt much more comfortable with the relaxed manner because Jesus said, come and learn of me. I'm I'm meek and I'm lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. And somehow when Chuck said it, you know, he was displaying it at the same time. So he was teaching it, but we're catching it all at the same time. I think um, people watch our mannerisms. Um, They watch your body language. You may not think it's important. But to an unbeliever, believe me, they're watching you like a hawk <laughs> and how, how you represent him. This next verse 7 is a very important verse when it comes to the inerrancy of Scripture. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servant the prophet. The emphasis there is on nothing. In other words, well, turn with me to John chapter 15. In the New Testament. Here the Lord is saying, I'm not going to do anything and it's going to catch you off guard. I'm not going to do anything until I reveal it to my prophets first. So I reject extra biblical writings like the Book of Mormon or so on and so forth, or the extra nine books that are in the Roman Catholic Bible. Good history, First and Second Maccabees. If you're in John 15, pick it up in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, than the, that one would lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. He was holding nothing back. Even Peter, when um, in John 21, he let Peter know that his, he was, he was going to lose his life for following him. And Peter knew about it. He didn't hold it back. You did, um, you did not choose me, but I chose you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that when whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And what he, the reason I brought you, you can go back to, to uh, Amos now. The Lord will do nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servant, the prophets. One third of the Bible is prophecy. Who does he speak through? His prophets. This is one of the minor prophets And in this case, he's going to, he's warning them 
to turn back because if they don't, then what's going to happen is that they're going to go into captivity and that's the calling of, of a prophet. 8 through 15. Proclaim it in the palace at Ashdod and in the palace in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. One of the biggest problems with um, um, the people at this time was their lack of love and compassion for the poor. Extremely self-centered, extremely indulgent. Um, When we get to um, uh, chapter 4, we'll get into more of the details of their ungodly lifestyle. Then he goes to the present from 11 to 15. Therefore, thus we have the therefore. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around your land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord. As a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in that day I punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. Now this last verse here, 15 The house of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. The house of ivory shall perish. Ahab and Jezebel had built on the top of the hill in Samaria. Their tremendous palace uh, was in this unbelievable location. The place covers the very brow of the hill, the tip-top of the hill, From the hill, they could look in every direction. To the west, they could see the Mediterranean Sea on a clear day. To the east, they could see the Jordan Valley. To the north, they could see the Valley of Eshkelon and Mount Hermon in the distance. And to the south, they could see Jerusalem. What a a vista from, from where they were. And this verse here of ivory is in reference to this dwelling place in uh, Samaria, Bethel, and the opulence that that they had, and really a life of ease, and it set them up. And this is, you know, the the Bible warns us to warn those who are rich. Why? Well, it's a no-brainer. You simply have more money to have more temptations. It's really that simple. I think of Lazarus and the rich man. It doesn't mean if you're rich you go to hell, and if you're poor you go to heaven. No, but when the rich man died, he did. He didn't really give a whole lot of thought about it, but Lazarus was happy just to get the scraps from the rich man's table. But he was rich in faith. How do I know? Because he said the rich man died and went to Hades, and Lazarus was carried um, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. There is a heaven, and there is a hell, 
and God has uh, um, the poor in spirit, and that doesn't mean poor financially, but poor in, in spirit, the word better translated there would be humbled. He's chosen them. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when um, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, humility is something you can't work up. Humility, I'm persuaded, can only come when you really sense the presence of God. When you're with men, it's sort of a competitive thing. I've always been competitive in sports and whatever. And um, it's just part of, I think, the human nature. You, you, you strive to win. And as long as it's man, mano, mano, no, no problemo. <laughs> but when you stand and you compare yourself and you're standing in the presence of a holy living God, then you have the same res- response that Hezekiah had. And that is, woe is me. <laughs> because all of a sudden I'm in the presence of holiness. I live with people with unclean lips. And, um, you know, he was, he was undone. Uh, so, humility can't be mustered up or made up. But when you're conscious of the Lord's presence, it brings about humility. And on the other extreme, it says knowledge puffs up. Uh, people in our country especially strive to get their kids to get to a, a good college and because they love their kids and they want their kids to attain a good job and have a good life. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? I mean, it's just natural to who we are. But with that, there should be that warning and one of the things that bugs me to no end is that they now have soccer and sports on Sunday morning. Well, what is that telling the kids? Well, it's certainly more important than going to church. And um, you're just sending out that message. Well, with the wisdom, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. Paul says we'll talk wisdom upon, to people who have wisdom, but real wisdom comes when you have a healthy fear of the Lord. And when you have a fear of the Lord, it doesn't puff you up, it causes you to be humble. Now Moses, the Bible says, God picked Moses. Well, what's so special about Moses? Answer, nothing. Except that he was the humblest man who walked the earth. Huh. And when he was offered the job, he says, you know, I got this speaking problem. Why don't you, Aaron's twice the man I am when it comes to this, pick him. So don't worry about it, Mo. Mo, don't worry about it, Mo. <laughs> I'll be with you, and I'll put my words in your mouth. Um, I can handle your impediment with your speech problem. Don't worry about it. But interesting that the Lord picked the meekest man on the earth to be Moses, one of the two that are going to show up uh, in Revelation 11. They showed up in John, in Matthew chapter 17, and an amount of transfiguration. But what you get when you get through college or grad school is a lot of knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's tempered and in second place to seeking first the kingdom of God and make sure you're denying yourself and uh, walking in the fear of the Lord. It, it can be done. I think it's more difficult. And... Um, We'll just leave that there. The houses of ivory shall perish. Uh, They were living in opulence, 
And the Lord said, but it's going to be taken away. Brings us to chapter 4. Here, the word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine and let us drink. Let's just stop with this first one right here. Uh, This is Amos and sarcasm at its height. It reminds me of Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal when Elijah had listened to them for half a day he began to use sarcasm. He says, well, maybe you guys should shout a little bit louder and just take a nap or something. Maybe he's on vacation. Who knows? Maybe he's busy using the bathroom. And yes, that's the wording there. And um, so they began to cut themselves and jump up and down and get all emotional. And, um, but here, prophets were using sarcasm. This is sarcasm when he uses the word, the cows of Bashan. Here, the word, if you have the King James, K-I-N-E of Bashan, that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy. Um, They say to to the masters, come, let us drink. Beginning with this chapter, chapter 4, we have a series of three chapters which deal specifically with Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. In chapter 4, we will be reminded that God in the past punished Israel for iniquity. Then in chapter 5, we'll see the future Israel will be punished for her iniquity. And finally, in chapter 6, we'll see Amos admonishing his generation in the present to depart from iniquity you see that this section has a very particular application to us as well as to Israel as it was in the days of Amos. Our country um, is probably the most comfortable country in the world to live in. Um, As far as um, um, wealth and prosperity and um, so on and forth, so forth, we could have the same tendencies where we could be, the sarcasm here is, hear the word of the Lord, you cows of Bashan, or in the mountains of Samaria. What he's referring to here is that, if you have the King James, does it have kind in there, K-I-N-E? Okay, it's really cows. There's a better, this is one of the places where I like the translation. Um, people go back and forth with it. If you're a King James only guy, Praise the Lord. I'm stuck with the New King James and a particular version because in my Bible, I know where everything is supposed to be. Is, is that how your Bible is? If you've had a Bible for a while and you're looking for something, you know right where it's supposed to be. You use somebody else's Bible and you're looking for something, can't find it anywhere. So here the better translation is, is the cows of Bashan. This area of Bashan is a territory east of the Jordan River between the mountains of Gilead in the south and Mount Hermon in the north. It was settled by the three tribes that stayed on the wrong side of Jordan. Now, when they went into the promised land, uh, two tribes and another half of the tribes, they liked the pasture there for their cows, for their grazing. And they said, we're going to stay here. 
And then the other tribes got really ticked off at him. And, um, and Joshua went and talked to him. And he said, look, we have to take the land. And they said, well, don't worry. We'll, we'll come back. We'll go in and we'll help fight the battles. But we want to come back here because of, of the, the lushness of the land. Um, the land of the Gadarenes, Mount Hermon. This would be the north, uh, north uh, east corner of, up by the Sea of Galilee. And um, it is a very, very fertile place. And the idea of, of where they are and these three tribes, uh, it, because it's a very fertile area, it's noted for its fine breed of cows. And the cows of Bashan were strong and sleek in appearance because of the lush grazing lands that were there. Now, two and three... It tells us that the Lord has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day will come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks. Now, this prophet was hearing from the Lord because for your prosperity, prosperity with fish hooks and you will go through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into harmon, uh, says the Lord. Well, that's exactly... When the Assyrians came in, that's what they were noted for. They literally put fish hooks in your nose, and that's how you were led into captivity. Four and five, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifice every morning. Your tithes every three days. Offer sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offering. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. Um, again, this is, I hope you can see it, it's sarcasm on uh, Amos's part. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. The word Gilgal means circle or to roll along. It was the first place to which Israel came after they crossed the Jordan. Well, not exactly. They went to Jericho, and then they went to Ai. But where they settled in for their capital would have been Bethel, under Joshua's leadership. And it became a sacred place to them. But later, it became the center of idolatry. And here again, it's associated with idolatry. So actually, a place or a thing can be used by the Lord at one time. Under Joshua's leadership, that generation sought the Lord. Uh, but then they began to meander. Let me give you an example of what's happening here. Turn with me to um, uh, John chapter 3. Give me an example of, of an idol that was used as a, by the Lord because Nicodemus would have known what he was talking about. The thing about Nicodemus was um, he was disturbed. And when he came to the Lord at night, it was because he didn't want anyone to see him because he himself was a Pharisee. He was a ruler. And um, he says, I'm troubled because nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with him. And I'm just not getting it. And Jesus cuts to the quick and he says, Nick, you got to be born again. 
And this went right over his head if you're going to see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was religious, but he had no idea what the spirit of the Lord was. So the Lord says, you must be born again. So you must be born again. So if somebody says, why must you be born again? You tell them because you must be born again. There's three musts in John chapter 3. This is the first one. The second must is right before you get to John um, 3.16 and John 14. He's witnessing to him. And this again is dialogue. So he, he tries to find common ground with something that Nicodemus would know, but he'd also be able to identify with. And so in verse 14, it says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, here's the second must, must, verse 14, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now here, in, we're not going to go there. Oh, why not go there? Before we go there, let me show you the third must. And that is, ah, here it is, verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And here's your walk with the Lord. As you walk with the Lord, the Lord has to, must increase, and you must decrease. And when, when uh, the disciples of John came to John and says, look, John, the guys are leaving you, and they're following this guy, Jesus. And he says, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. I must decrease, but he must increase. But let's go back to um, cross-reference here in verse 14. And remember, we're, we're talking about Bethel. Let's keep it in context. Bethel at one time was God, what God used under Joshua's leadership. During his generation, it was righteous. But eventually, they turned it into a place of idolatry. So turn with me to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, verse 9. As the people were walking by faith, they weren't any different than you you or I. We murmur and complain from time to time. So did they. Um, let's pick it up with four. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. The soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That would have been the manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now, Jesus is telling this story to Moses. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So here's where sin, of course, biting the people, representative of the serpent. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent uh, or bronze, which is a symbol of judgment, and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now half the people said, really? That's all it takes? That's all it takes. And so those that looked at the serpent that were bit, uh, they lived. Some people said, that's the craziest thing I have ever heard. 
I'm dying here. I I got stink poisoning. You tell me I'm supposed to look at the stick and I'm going to be all right. Well, they died. And so the Lord is using this as an illustration. Well, it became a source of God's miraculous healing that that Nicodemus would have been very well aware of. Yeah, I remember that story. Well, later on, this became a thing of object of worship. And it was actually, I think it was during Hezekiah's time that they were worshiping. They had, they had kept this thing around. And the people would come and worship it. And I'm pretty sure it was Hezekiah. He took the thing, he broke it up, and he crushed it, and he threw it that way, and he said, Nahushtan. This is a thing of brass. Wake up. It's nothing. And so we could get sidetracked here and talk about little emblems you wear here that'll protect you or put something on your dash or or put Mary in a bathtub or whatever, you know. You know. But there, you know, is I say it sort of tongue in cheek, but people take this very, very seriously. And um um you know, I'm not going to back down from saying that in the Catholic Bible, they've simply taken out the second commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven image. And they make it out of ten because they stretch out the ninth and the tenth commandment. Why did they do that? Well, because they do have objects of worship where they're told to worship. And it's idolatry. Anything that you, um, that's why the Lord says, don't make any images of me, because John four, Jesus said that the Lord is looking for those. And the woman at the well said, "Well, where are we where are we supposed to worship anyway?" And the Lord said, "It's not the place; it's the heart. God is looking for people to worship them in spirit and in heart, not in a place." Uh, this is a disco, in case you didn't know, <laughs> and that's what it used to be. Uh, that's that right over here. There was this ball. And underneath it was a plexiglass floor. And uh, the walls were carpeted with black shag rugs. <laughs> Not one window in the place. And, uh, but it had potential. And I knew it had potential. So the disco got born again. And, uh, and the Lord has been using it for his glory. As long as I'm getting sidetracked telling stories. There was a woman who lived down in a corner. She's been with the Lord now for years. She was a missionary, her and her husband, to um, um, India. So I, I took an interest in her right away. And um, until uh, Britain, this was the decline. This was the decline of the of the um, <clears throat> um, England's empire. The saying was at one time that the sun never set on the British Empire. It was true. And then um, they got kicked out of India in 47. They did provide a transportation system. That was good in India. It's the main source of getting around. But they came back to the States and lived there. And this place was a problem. Studio 9000 was a problem to the neighborhood. It was supposed to be a dry disco, but everybody came and hid their their booze from you name it, and then they would you know, and then they'd terrorize the neighborhood. The neighbors hated it. They tried to get the city to shut it down, and the owner was trying to get a, a liquor license to keep it going. 
And um, when I met this woman, I can't remember her name now, her and her husband would go and they would walk around Studio 9000 and they would pray for it. And she's the one who told me this story. She says, we are claiming this building for the glory of God that it would be used for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, there's so many divine appointments that I could tell that would take up the rest of, the, of it where it was, it was simply the Lord. I think I just told part of it last week, but I'm, my memory is such that if I, it could have been six years ago, and I'm thinking it was just last week. <laughs> Did I tell a $16,000 story within the last month? You're not on your head, so I'll tell you. The the guy wanted like $80,000 for a down payment. We came here. The city closed him down because he couldn't get his liquor license, so there was nobody in here. And I saw the potential in the place. Thing is, we only had $16,000 in our savings account. And he wanted a quarter of a million for the whole thing. And he wanted a an obnoxious amount of $80,000 for down payment. So I'm sitting out at his other bar that he had on the other side of town. And I said, um, why don't you work with us? Um, um, call your bank. And I didn't tell him to call his bank. I just said, we can't come up with the, your down payment. Um, I, I have to know what is the very lowest amount of money that you will take before you work with us. And we'll sign an agreement with you, but you got to give me your rock dollar bottom price. What is it? He says, hold on, I'll call my bank. He calls his bank, gets out the phone, and he says, if you guys can come up with $16,000, I'll work with you. Now, it was to the penny, all right? And I could tell story after story after story because after we had the 16000 for here, we didn't have any more money. And we had a building project to do. But every day the Lord would provide. So when we say, unless the Lord builds a house, we really don't want anything to do with it. And when we, when we say where God guides, he provides, we really mean that. And um, it gives us all kinds of confidence to go, to go forward. So with this here, um, we don't idolize a, a something that used to be a disco. The Lord turned it into a beautiful building. But we're not going to worship it. Why? Because it's just it's just a building. You're the church. <laughs> the church are people, and the temple of God, we're told in First Corinthians, is you. Don't you realize that you're the temple of God, and God dwells in you? So this is a place that we meet. We thank the Lord for it, and we thank the Lord that we can tell stories like that because the Bible says, make known the deeds of the Lord amongst the people. And when you hear a story like that, you go, it's got to be the Lord. And no man can take credit for it. And so I, I like telling divine appointment stories. Where do I leave off? Verse 4 and 5. Don't worship it. Come to Bethel, you transgressors. The sarcasm that he's using is um, they had turned this place into a place of idolatry. And so Amos invites them to multiply their transgressions at Gilgal. That would be like saying today, come to church and sin. Obviously, one goes to church for the very opposite. And Amos is using the satire here to, to sort of a taunting rebuke. Um, it's really a ridiculous statement to alert the people as to what they're actually doing. This is Bethel. Well, it, 
No, it's just a place that God used under Joshua as a headquarters at one time, but he never meant it for you to turn it into a shrine uh, that you worship. All right, 6 through 11. I will also give you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your palaces. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you. Well, there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain in one city, and I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities withered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Now, in this case here, it is the idea that the Lord brings them down with the idea that they'll look up like the prodigal. Uh, I sent you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young man I killed with the sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Now, he's talking about um, blessing them, some of them, um, and then having to bring plague. And then we get up to verse 12, and we have the therefore. What he just described is... Israel's judgment is demonstrated in the past. And now, in verse 12, he says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel. Now he's talking about what's coming down the road. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O sinner. Now this verse right here, prepare to meet your God, comes after the therefore. The whole idea, if we want to make a personal Application. Let's read the rest, but we'll come back to the therefore. Um, For behold, he who forms mountain and creates the wind, who declares to a man his thoughts and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord of hosts is his name. He says, therefore I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your maker. And I just make that personal. Do you realize that you're going to stand before Jesus Christ someday, one-on-one? Your parents aren't going to be there. Your wife isn't going to be there. It's going to be a one-on-one. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment in 1 Corinthians 3. And every man will be judged according to his works, whether good or bad. Prepare to meet your God. Now, this is supposed to be an exhortation for them to get around. Uh, Let's go, go to Matthew 24 real quick, and we'll give a new... Testament application. Matthew 24, verse 42. As it was in the days of Noah. I believe we're living in the days of Noah right now. I believe um, the rapture is verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We just got through Daniel, so we know to the day the Lord would be presented to Israel. We know because of Daniel 12 the very day that Jesus Christ will return. What we don't know is when the Lord will come for the rapture. 
That day and hour no one knows. But as it was in the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And his life is normal. The way it was for them in Amos' time, it was normal. Everything was cool. They were prosperous and everything was fine. And they were living in that prosperity. And all of a sudden, bam, it's going to happen. And it is going to happen. I don't know if we're going to make it tonight through it all, but the Assyrians are going to come in, and it's just going to happen just that quick. And so how would we apply that to the here and now? Well, I look at what's happened in the last two weeks, and I'm not going to stand up here and say this is the judgment of God. But Mary, out of curiosity, looked up what the word What's the name of the hurricane? Arma. You know, you know what it means? It means war goddess, just for what it's worth. And um, I thought, well, that's interesting. Does, does it mean anything? And people wonder, is this a judgment from God? Is this something that is supposed to happen to shake us up? I don't know. Is it shaking people up? Absolutely. It's absolutely shaking people up. And it's, it's getting their attention. So what's your point, Dwight? Well, if we're living in the days of Noah... And um, we're planning on a baptism next week. I'm planning on going to Omaha, speak at a pastor's conference. I'm planning on going to Israel. You know, looking forward to all those things. But, you know, just like that, all that can change. And so we read in verse 32, because just like that, all things could change. He says, watch therefore. In other words, don't let the easy lifestyle and the money and the things get in the way of you watching and making sure that you know that if the Lord says, okay, now, watch therefore, for you do not know the hour the Lord is coming, but know that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched. If you know that the Lord was coming on, um, well, there's those that hold to the Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Feast of Trumpets, um, I, w- I wouldn't be dogmatic one way or the other about that. All the feasts have prophetic fulfillments. Um, this one's this year is probably more interesting than another one. I think next year is more interesting because it's Israel's 70th birthday for being a nation. But the whole idea is that uh, if you had watched and not have allowed the house to be broken into, therefore... So here we have another therefore. Therefore you also be ready, even in what kind of times? Well, when people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and they didn't know until the flood actually came. They weren't ready for it. And neither is this people. They don't want to hear Amos. What are they? We read in chapter 7, get out of here. Go back to Judah with your message. You want to be a prophet? Go be a prophet down there. We don't want you around here. Things are fine. You're telling us that our king is going to die and that we're going to go into a captivity. Don't want to hear it. So we tell people today, you know, there's only one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. It's only through Jesus. Well, I don't like that. That's too narrow. You're, you're narrow-minded. <laughs> yes, I am. But not really me. This book, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many be that find it. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few be that find that. True Bible-believing, born-again Christians 
will be in a minority in the last days. And therefore, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect him. It's eight, so I'm not going to rush it, and we'll just uh, we'll pick it up there and leave it with uh, the thought that the main theme of our study tonight is a prophet who was a farm boy who tended sheep, and God called him. He called him to a people who did not want to hear what he had to say. What did he have to say? You guys better get back to your first love because you've turned the place of Bethel into an idol. And you have no compassion. And that, that would be one of the main things that I'd want to stick out in the study tonight. Chapter 4, verse 1. You oppress the poor who crush the needy. You know, they, had, they didn't have a heart. They had no love. They had love for themselves, and they were only interested in satisfying their own appetites and not thinking about the other guy. You know, my Bible says that we're to esteem one another higher than ourselves. Now, that's not me. That's not my nature. I told you earlier, I'm competitive. But it is the nature of the person who lives inside of me. And so if I let him get up in the morning and say, Lord, here's my life. I'm flexible. Here's my schedule. But if you want to change it, you can. And that's called, here's another Chuckism I'll leave you with. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. How's that for a parable? (laughs) And so the idea is we live in a nation much like the nation of Israel during Amos' time. He's trying to get their attention, but they just don't want to hear it. And yet, um, um, we'll leave it at that. Let's stand and we'll pray for tonight. Lord, we thank you for your word as we got through a couple of these chapters tonight. And um, Lord, help us be led by your spirit and go by your pace. And sometimes we'll get through five or six chapters and sometimes only one or two. And so I pray that the things that you've spoken through Amos chapters three and four this evening would be a part of an exhortation to us uh, to heed your word, that you've spoken the Amos of warning, of coming judgment. So to our generation, the nation that sees Israel become a nation, you said would see the fulfillment of all things. And yet we, we live in very much an opulent, prosperous country, and it's easy to get caught up in this world. So Lord, we thank you for your word, the Bible, that straightens us out every time we open it up. And once again, Lord, we we thank you and pray that as we go out tonight that you would be the love of our life, that we would be watching for you, not out of fear, but because we're looking for that one that we haven't seen, that we love. And we just want to be with you rather than here. Until then, Lord, help us be light and salt to this dark world and help us uh, be fools for Christ and not ever be ashamed of the gospel that saves us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.